to the Blatcast. Today, we're doing something a little different. I'm joined in studio by Hamlet Sarkissian, who is the author of Lovers in the Fog. Now, that's a book you can find out more about at loversinthefog.com. And I want to talk about the book, but I needed to start off talking about how you were born in the former Soviet Union, specifically in Armenia. And maybe there are people listening, maybe even people talking right now, who didn't know that Armenia was part of the former Soviet Union. But my question for you to start off is how much of uh, what our impression was here in the United States of the Soviet Union was accurate and what are some things that maybe we would be surprised by? Yes, it's very confusing and it's even confusing for my children who hear it at home all the time. But absolutely it was not a correct information what USSR was about. And it was shocking to me too when I came to United States for permanent residency as a political refugee in late 80s. And suddenly here I discovered that, you know, people think of Soviet Union as some some sort of a fairy land. Many sure. here, which I was surprised because they were kind of arch enemies, those systems. And uh, even while I was living in the Soviet Union, I remember that when Russia was always running out of grain, this was a question that my father was always asking uh, with his friends, how come the United States was always providing the wheat and the grain, so basically saving USSR from going into famine? See, these questions were always in my mind when I arrived here. And suddenly I discovered that there is a huge Gorbamania going on kind of Gorbachev worship was going on in America when I came. So they were seeing Gorbachev as kind of this guy who helped the West to tear down the wall and uh, open the country, which is not the way we were seeing him at all. And you'll be surprised that uh, I saw the only person really, honestly, when I was watching CNN in 1990, actually. I saw there was only one guy who kind of explained what was going on in America, and that was President Nixon. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was in shock. I was like, and I saw uh, Larry King asking this question to President Nixon about Gorbachev, and and Nixon, being very knowledgeable, he said uh, he had no intention of bringing down Soviet Union. Right. He just wanted to keep his power on but he was reported that economically they're collapsing. So he introduced the ideas of Perestroika and Glasnost to sure. keep it going. Oh, I he see. had no idea that it was like a powder cake, that he just lit up the match and it exploded. And so uh, that's the view I had of uh, Gorbachev as somebody very manipulative, Uh, some sort of a Politburo member, a communist from head to toe, who wanted to keep the USSR going. And then suddenly I was seeing here, oh, Gorbachev this, Gorbachev that, Uh, some of Hollywood celebrities were doing birthday parties for him and stuff, and it was very disturbing to me. So I kind of realized, no, this story is not told right. Um, just, uh, it seems like it's a little bit of a detour, but have you had a chance to see the HBO series on Chernobyl? Yes, I, I, I love those series. I thought it, much. I thought it was amazing, but also one of the least 
fun ways to spend five hours in my life. It was amazingly well done, but yeah. you know, uh, it, it was really tough to watch at times. But I think it was it was a story that needed to be told. So I have two reasons I bring that up. The first is that in that series, and of course it's you know it's a, it's adapted. It is a work of fiction. It's not really a documentary. Mm-hmm. But you see Gorbachev more as like you know just a, a small cog in the machine. I guess because that happened, he was still new to power. But uh, I, I I don't think. At least as American, I had never really seen him like that, where he's just another guy who, yes, has to make tough decisions, but, uh, you know, he's certainly, I don't think he's portrayed poorly, but I don't think the same kind of halo might be around him that's sort of the way you're talking about. Right, but the power of this series for me was that it, it helped all my friends, yeah. and I have, you know, I'm a filmmaker, and sure. I'm an author, I live in Hollywood, so most of my friends, very good friends, some of my family member. Our, our members are Democrats, okay? So they very much have so left-leaning uh, right. politics. So they see socialism as a little bit of a fairy tale. They have different names to socialism, democratic socialism and this and that, which maybe we can talk later on. Sure. So I always tell everybody, if you want to know what socialism is, just watch the TV series Chernobyl. So that's a that that is a, a great representation of socialism of that uh, ideology, yeah, which is actually realized as, as socialism. Because to me, the most telling thing is that the problem, the well, the meltdown at the reactor, it, it becomes a problem because no one wants to get in trouble. Nobody wants to lose their job. Uh, everybody's trying to figure out who else they can blame for it. So there seems to be sort of a key period of more than a day. That's for your government control from top to bottom. Right. And also many years of socialism always in every country creates a dictator. That's kind of in every country, in Vietnam, in Korea, in East Germany, West Germany, in Russia, this Marxist-Leninism ideology is a very deadly ideology. It always creates a dictator. So what happens when there's a dictator down the bureaucracy chain, everybody becomes a small dictator. So what is very well shown in TV series Chernobyl, that there were many mini-Stalins everywhere. Right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you do see, and especially there's the there's sort of an older party official early in the series who he kind of gives the speech for you know like why we basically have to cover this up and not let people know. Can about you imagine? It. And he gets a round of applause for uh, for doing it. So. Absolutely. And the disdain, disdain for human life. Yeah. Which didn't matter at all, and I I don't think still matters. Well, the interesting thing that uh, I found sort of separate from the series but relating to it is so now we're almost 30 years at the fall of the Soviet Union and this series is very popular in the United States and also I know it aired in the United Kingdom and I guess around the world. So the the Russian government, obviously there's no Soviet government, but the Russian government is subsidizing what they say is going to be a series that tells the true story about how CIA operatives infiltrated the the nuclear uh, the nuclear reactor and they caused it intentionally. Does it surprise you at all that this far out there's still I guess that machine in place that's like, well, no, we try we're going to try to save face here. We're going to try and look a little better than the Americans made yeah. us look. No, it doesn't surprise me because in in mid eighties, my father before uh, his death, he died in nineteen eighty seven. Before his death, he said, listen, this country, is, it seems, is collapsing, and it's going to be Sodom Gomorrah here. It's going to be um, 
criminal elements of the society will unite with some party apparatchiks and they will create some sort of a lutocracy. Right. So what happened was uh, KGB outmaneuvered communist apparatchiks and took over the country. So they have recreated another version of USSR, except few republics managed to walk away. That's what has happened. Otherwise, the, in uh, Russia today, the predominant majority of the people still have the Soviet mentality. So they have created another dictator, which is Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And he needs an enemy to thrive on because now it's an absolute lutocracy. Few oligarchs are looting the country in broad daylight. They're taking all their assets and money to Great Britain to storing them in English banks and here, there. And Putin protects them. And that's how they run the country right now. So anybody who speaks against them, they either kill them or they just expel them from the country. But I don't know how long it's going to continue because in Russia every 70 years or 80 years there's always some cataclysmic event because there's no liberty-minded people in the country. You see, this idea of liberty needs to be taught. People have to experience it. So they have not experienced these things. So that's why people like dissidents, people like my father, who were dreaming about it, fought and they gave their life to it. Now there's just very few of them left. Well, let's talk a little bit about your father. And uh, you'll help me with the uh, pronunciation. Is is it Vashe? Vashe. So I was not even close. Vashe. And uh, he was, uh, I guess he literally was a political prisoner. Sort of explain a little bit about his background and when, I guess, he ends up being in prison for his beliefs and, you know, how old you were at the time that, that all there that was, was happening. There was an uh, extensive dissident movement in Russia. Let's, uh, we have to separate Russian people from uh, Russian government. Right. Because Russian people have suffered genocide because Bolsheviks who came to power, international socialists who came to power, nationalists, many think nationalistic was their enemy. So they destroyed every idea of nationalism in Russia. So they created, the, their idea was to create a new type of human being, and they were, co- they were calling it Homo Sovieticus. Oh, wow, okay. And somehow uh, they managed to do it, but, it, but for that they had to implement a, a terror to their own people. So 20 million Russians have been murdered by other Russians during... USSR regime, right. because that was a regime, it was very, very barbaric regime. It was very cannibalistic regime because it was eating on its own. And don't forget that there was barbed wire around the country. We could not go nowhere. Right. There was no freedom of travel. There was no freedom of speech. There's no freedom of movement. None of that. It was, it was taken away. Government was making all decisions for its citizens. Now, opposite of United States, where which is an individualistic society, you have to know that those two societies, where the ideology is, um, uh, the theory of their ideology is radically opposite of each other. So they, that's this is one of the reasons that they've been in struggle with each other for all this time, because in United States it's an individualistic uh, approach. This constitution written that protects individuals' rights. And 
in Soviet Union, in Bolshevik and communist or socialist, and it's the same ideology, is collective takes over those rights. It's not the individual. Individual does not matter. So once they instigated their first line of terror when Bolsheviks took power and millions and millions of people were killed, and then afterwards, in, in late 50s, there was a group of intellectuals in Soviet Union that, you know, who were educated, well-read, and some of them, uh, through literature, got exposed to Western moral value system. They started uh, forming groups. These were mostly intellectuals, politi- um, mathematicians, engineers, musicians, and stuff, and 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 demanding from government to change, to instigate change in society, to give more rights to them. Many of them were still trying to get those rights within the socialistic system. But some of them decided to break free. For example, my father and his friends uh, translated Federalist papers from German. Oh, from German? From okay. German, imagine that. Yeah. I mean, to be caught with this type of literature in Soviet Union, you were going to prison for a very long time. Right. Okay? But these were ideological people. They were dedicated to their cause. My father first was imprisoned in 1941. Just... So during World War During the war. He was imprisoned, and he was sent because uh, he was explaining why, because they were seeing German army advancing 300 kilometers a day. Yeah. And there was nothing really standing against them. And a group of friends got together, and they decided, and they wanted to talk about if these Germans one day enter Armenia, how are they going to defend their country? Yeah. And of course, uh, immediately it was reported to their local, at that time, NKVD, which was the name of the KGB authorities, and they were sent to prison for 10 years, and then afterwards uh, he ended up spending 17 years in prisons. But so they go to prison more because they're they concerned to, about how to defend their country from the Germans. I mean, that's essentially what it was. That, yes, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of a paradox, isn't it? I mean, because there were patriots who wanted to defend their country. However, during Stalin regime, it's very difficult uh, to give five-minute overview of how... Um, uh, barbaric the regime became over the course of those few decades after Bolsheviks, because Bolsheviks understood that they cannot uh, hold on to power unless they completely uh, behead uh, entire opposition to them. So then this it became a killing machine. So it was like many, many decades of killing machine. They, they killed all their intellectuals, all their thinking people, it came to a point that I read in one of the newspapers, it shocked me, that in Odessa they were already killing everybody who was dressed well. Wow. So, so the, enti- the flower of the nation got decapitated. So it, it was uh, uh, Lenin and Stalin created a system that only thieves, thieves and thugs could rise to power. You really had to rat on somebody. You know, you had, you had to be treasonous character, you know, all these vices that humans have, you had to really manifest them to get into power. That's one of the reasons that people, when they say, how come people were not rising in mass because they were being killed, so many of them? 
because they could not, because anybody who was in any sort of power in the country was a thief or a thug. See? Yeah, and I mean, and that's something that, you know, clearly on display in a, in a, in a story like Chernobyl, you see everyone trying to grab and hold on to the power and anything that rocks that boat is a problem. But obviously that's, our understanding is really that's what it was. Now, you've talked a lot about communism, uh, contrasted it with socialism, which I do think you have a, a fairly large contingent of people in the United States feel like, well, socialism is a solution. Different. Yeah. yeah. Well, that it's very different, you know. And you'll see things like, you know, like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela was, I would say that he's best described as a thug, but you'll see, like, the actor Sean Penn will go down and hang out with him and take pictures. Like, he, yeah. was, like he was a celebrity, too. And why do you think that so few people understand just how similar those two systems are Confusion. Really are. Yeah. There's a, a big confusion because, first of all, all, all the people who think communism and socialism are different, they just have to read, do yeah. more reading, and they will see that socialism, one of the first things socialism advocates is abolition of private property. All our rights come from private property. You see, private property doesn't mean the piece of land that we own. Private pr property means also our body, our mind, our thoughts. This founding father, when they said all our rights come from private property, that's what they meant. Owning my body, my thoughts, making decisions for myself. And in socialism and in communism, that's the number one thing they want to get rid of. Get rid of private property, meaning getting rid of all the rights. So it has become the same. You see, there's a gigantic confusion right now. Uh, Left-wing politicians are called liberals. Well, liberal was meant defender of liberty. Sure, yeah. Okay? So defender of liberty automatically means somebody who defends constitution and defends Bill of Rights, but not at all. Now it's just completely left-wing socialistic ideology is being now identified with the word liberal, right? Yeah, absolutely. An another thing. When um, Hollywood or, let's say, American uh, Americans generally, okay, when they talk about ideology, they say socialism and communism, and then suddenly capitalism. They think capitalism is an ideology. Capitalism is an economical ideology. Capitalism is not an ideology. Capitalism is, is, describes an economical way of dealing with each other. Free trade is that's what capitalism is about. Americanism, which is the individualism, this is really the ideology. I'm talking Americanism not in, in sense of language. I'm talking Americanism in, in, in the sense of philosophical ideology, which is individual rights, Constitution, Bill of Rights, that is buried out of everywhere. You see? Yeah. So there is this confusion. So now you have a few major corporations uh, who are together, formed cabals, and running economy worldwide. Oil, cabal, I don't know, banking, cabal. There's just few of them, five, four, five of them. And these people, uh, Hollywood people and the rest, are rebelling against those corporate control. And so where they go is they go to socialism. So they think socialism is the solution for them against their corporate control. And they don't understand that America was not made to become a corporate control. Right. 
So we need to fight to be more free, not less free. For example, when they say choose between uh, security versus uh, freedom, right? I mean, it's as the, you cannot, it's like saying somebody choose between your mother and your father. No, we need both. We need both security and liberty. And we need to fight for that. We need to fight to become more free. But because the idea of liberty is not taught in schools, you see, it's already, I have kids who go to schools, and I see how little attention is being paid what individualism is, what American ideas are about. So this is in this mishmash. Suddenly they see those people who fight corporations as their heroes. And for me, uh, Hugo Chavez or Saddam Hussein, there's no difference between them. These are dictators. And if you're on the wrong side, they shoot you. Right. I mean, literally. You're gone. I mean, yeah, someone like Hugo Chavez and then, you know, Fidel Castro was kind of viewed favorably but in certain circles. And I think that uh, it's it's always interesting that it, it always seems like, oh, but, you know, this is this is one of the good ones, you know? I mean, uh, I no, think... There's no good socialist. Right, that's what I mean. But pe- people seem to feel like somebody like Hugo Chavez, you know, it's almost like they don't pay attention. It's like, sure, on paper, I think socialism, if you just summarize it in one sentence, probably sounds great. Communism probably does too. Yeah. But in actual, you know, when you put it into operation, of course, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. No, you see, it's very important what you said, Christian, because those ideologies are based on our human psychology. Right. If you look into a family, now you will see inside your family, you will see the American, the socialist, you will see somebody who doesn't want to work and wants to live off of the other ones, and you will see the other person who wants to take everything you own without doing efforts, and then you will see your brother who wants to work very hard and make it in life. You know, those ideologies are based on really uh, our psychology, who we are as people. That's why founding fathers in America tried to come up with a system that protects the individual, that it... It allows us to make our own decisions. They knew we as people have many flaws, many vices. You put anybody to power, they become corrupted. So they wanted to protect the individual. And in socialism, what's government? Basically, someone like Bernie Sanders, who's definitely a very honest and good human being. You can sense it. But the ideology he advocates, for me, is very deadly because... He advocates big government control on everything. It was government. These are people. You put people in charge and you give them power, an absolute power, as a matter of fact, because during socialism, these are unelected uh, officials. So they get intoxicated with their power and they start exercising nepotism. And then it becomes plutocracy. And it happens everywhere all the time. So it's, it's like these people deny who we are as human beings, that we have greed, lust. You know, it's like it exists in all of us. So we need, that's why this American system is so powerful. And that was the only experiment, really, in the history of mankind. And that's why those founding fathers also, they said, this document, Constitution, is it's good. We're going to work for it now. But this is also for everybody in the world who wants to use it. Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, the idea that this is a system that 
you know, needs to be changed to that level, you know, when you have people that advocate something like socialism. It's Let like, me well, talk about the system change. Yeah. That's also amazes me then when I see on CNN or here, there, when people say that the Constitution is an old document. Sure. It was written 250 years ago. It needs to be changed. It's like, listen, Plato, Aristotle wrote things 2,500 right. years ago. And they're, <laughs> you know, it's like saying... Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, which is like da 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 da, right? Yeah. Like those major. Like let's change it. It was two hundred fifty years ago. Let's just do da 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 da. No, it's not the same. Yeah, it's not the same at all. So this document cannot be changed because that document is is an achievement for mankind. Opposite, we need to study more, because those guys who tried to free the society and they were all well-to-do people. They didn't have to do that. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, they were all living very good life. Yeah. I mean, they were slave owners. They were, they were the, the elite of that society, but they jeopardized. And many, this is also a historical fact that many people don't know, that those people who signed the, the Declaration of Liberty, many of them paid terrible price for that. Well, yeah, because it wasn't its own country yet, you know, and, and yeah, having your name and, you know, yeah. John Hancock's name larger than everyone else's, it calls attention to the fact. So, like, so basically, had the, you know, American Revolution not gone the the way that it did, these are all people who would have, you know, very publicly been hanged or, you know, I mean, they would have had examples made out of them, but... Uh, I, I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm generally patient uh, human being, but, but I, I run out of patience when people start bashing America without understanding what this country is about. Right, well, I think people who bash this country maybe don't have the experience of being somewhere else. I mean, you know, living somewhere else. I mean, yes, you grew up under Yes, there's no point system. of reference. I right. agree with you. Right, and so, you know, I guess it's just like, oh, you know, the, everything looks so much better in, in Cuba, which I don't understand because that seems like, you know, one of the one of the worst places to have been, you know, and it's like, well, they have... They have nationalized health care. I'm like, sure, but if you criticize the leader, you, you know, you'll disappear one night. You Absolutely. Know? And, I mean, think about, you know, how amongst the media and celebrities, how wildly unpopular our president is. Uh, you know, about half the country loves him, but you do have these people, and they're so outspoken. The things they say about him, I, I you know, you wouldn't see that in a lot of places, not even necessarily uh, socialist or communist uh, no. dictatorships. And, and let's talk about that, because... Uh, President, it's it's very controversial figure, Donald Trump. And sure. I think because he's not a gentleman, you know, he's this uh, this is in, in 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 especially in Europeans and Americans. Do you know a man gets some statue in in society uh, when he's a gentleman? It's kind of a known fact. It's American that most polite people, you know, hardworking people, is kind of engraved in consciousness. So he's kind of arrogant way of speaking, him uh, uh, calling other politicians' names and this and that, they mix this up with actual political decisions that are being made. Right. See? So hate is unacceptable. I just, I don't accept hating president. I really don't. And since I am in this country, I have not agreed with none of those presidents. Sure, I don't think anybody should agree with any yeah. president entirely. And, and it's, and it's very say, clear yeah. that some of them even did not know, uh, did not understand their position in the world. For example, what happened with President Clinton 
when in the Oval Office he was having an affair with an intern, that's, it's very clear to me he never understood where he is. That yeah. sacred place where Thomas Jefferson was, James Madison was, if he would understand, do you think he would ever do such an act? Of course not. So we had people like that who showed up in politics and said, in this mishmash, we're not seeing where is the true agenda, is where is the country going. For example, I do have to give credit to uh, President Trump for bringing one an, um, fact to uh, uh, attention of American people when he mentioned that 77,000 factories were taken out of the United States and moved to China. Yeah. This is so shocking. 77,000 factories, it's like what? It's millions of people. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, so many jobs. And then you're moving these jobs to a communist country, okay, where there is totalitarian control and killed 60 million people of their own. More people, Mao Zedong, killed killed than Stalin. So you are bringing this and strengthening the economy of this communistic regime. Guess what's what's going to happen? They're going to become more powerful communistic regime. Right, and China owns so much of our debt. You know, the fact that they've bought up so much of our, you know, trillions of dollars of debt. I mean, I, there's always sort of the expectation where, you know, uh, you can make the argument if you want to. It's like, well, just don't pay it. But then it's like, you know, they, they have leverage over anybody. It doesn't matter who's in that White House. Yeah, you see, that's, that's, that's what it is. So talking about patriotism, talking about the country, national interests and this and that, it's, it became almost uh, anathema. It's kind of uh, not the right thing to do. So that's one of the reasons when those people were moving those jobs to China for supposedly economic reason for their profits, there was nobody in the Congress saying, well, that's not the right thing to do. Yeah. You have to get your profits differently. And if it's okay, you don't get 100% profit, maybe you get 25% profit. But at the same time, this is a moral hazard. It's a wrong thing to do. You're taking these jobs over there. People get paid nothing. You're strengthening a country. And right now, United States declares that China is our first uh, strategic uh, uh, enemy. Imagine that. How did that happen? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we, we mentioned before how people under a lot of these systems are clinging on to power. But of course, elected officials, uh, you know, once they get a little taste of it, I mean, you have people who are reelected for 30 or 50 years, and they don't want to have to go get a real job. You know, they don't want to have to work. So when you can be a politician, anything that keeps you in that spot. So it's like if these companies that want to move to China, you know, all, all sorts of whatever, whatever it is that that they will do for you, you're more than happy to look the other way and be like, yeah, go ahead and move to move to China as long as as long as I get something that helps me. And I, I mean, I guess it's like you know, you can say that this is a great system. I don't mean you specifically. Anyone yeah. says this is a great system. Of course, any system is flawed because people are flawed. And exactly. you know, you talked about absolute power before. There's you know the great saying that power corrupts, but absolute power, of course, corrupts absolutely. So. Anything that you could do, you know, it's just like, sure, in the Soviet Union, the the people who, you know, were high up in the party, they were looking out for themselves. But uh, somebody who's been in the Senate for 30 years is also looking out for himself. He'll say that he's looking out for the people who are going to vote for him, but 
you know, they're looking out for them because they want to get reelected. Um, so we could talk about all this forever, but I wanted to actually circle back to your father because he doesn't just go to jail the one time. I, I guess so when you're fairly young, he, does he go back to jail? What yeah, happens? So what happened was he was 17 years in one go in, right. in, in gulag camps. And and it, it was also very uh, upsetting a few days ago when uh, one of the congressmen we have, uh, AOC, I think they call her. Yeah, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. When she, when, when she yeah. said that this... Um, Immigrants or migrants who are trying to cross the border, they're kept in camps and they're concentration camps. It's it upset me very much because my father was in a concentration camp. Gulag camps were concentration camps. Right. So it says to you how out of touch some of those pe- people are. How much lack of history. These people don't understand what's suffering. Well, I think that's why somebody like Alexandria Casio Cortez, where you know, I think we should all take into consideration that she, I believe she's 29, you know. So She scares much, me the most. How much, uh, you know, experience she has, but also why somebody like her, it's not that hard for them to believe, like, well, look how great socialism would be. This is really yeah. what we need, you know. So, and yeah, I mean, I think that because, you know, obviously, you know, when we think of concentration camps, we think of the German concentration camps and, you know, the six million Jews that were killed. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, there are plenty of examples that are like that. And and as terrible as the situation at the border is for the people who are being detained and held, you hear about families being split up, it, it, There, there's not... You know, gas chambers there. You know, I mean, there's not. I, it's I, there's uncomparable. No firing squads. It's uncomparable. You know, it, I much rather have her spend her time. Yeah. To figure out a good, comprehensive immigration reform, that once and for all this issue is resolved, who's coming in, who can come in, for what reason and stuff, rather than just making uh, such a stupid comments. But yeah, let's go back to to, sure. to my father. And my father, after spending 17 years, he obviously came back from those camps, knowing that you know. And he said that to me. He said there must be some generation that is ready to sacrifice themselves for the other ones. And he saw himself someone like that. And I uh, adored him. I I worshipped him very much. So in 1987, uh, in 1986. Uh, I was student in film school in Leningrad, and I remember that he, he said to me, listen, now the KGB people started doing experiments on political prisoners, and so they're placing uh, radioactive isotopes in their pillows and this and that, and people come out and they die from cancer. Oh, okay, wow. Okay, And then, of course, years later, you saw what KGB did to Litvinenko, they had him swallow personalized atomic bomb. Yeah. You know, so those experiments were happening before, and they were happening on these uh, political prisoners. And Gorbachev was part of that. And so my father, at the end, got disillusioned also by uh, dissident movement because he saw that it was infiltrated. So he lost his hope, and he got depressed, and, and in 1987 he committed suicide. But prior, he kind of instructed me to move to United States and to have new generation be born in freedom. And then he said to me, the fight continues because he said, there's an organization in England called Fabian Society that is now attacking American Constitution. And you have to go continue the fight. See what I mean? No, absolutely. And yeah. So that's why when I was writing this book, I wanted 
I want it to be not politically correct. This is very politically correct culture we're living in right now. And I wanted to expose uh, true nature of Soviet Union and to do comparative analysis. What is American system versus the Soviet system? Really, that's what is, besides the fact that it's a very powerful love story about guilt and redemption and it sits at the core. But but I, I understand that many people who are now interested in the book, they, they're more interested in the politics of it. Yeah, and obviously uh, we've gone all this way and we've barely spoken about the title of the book, which is Lovers in the Fog. And uh, people can, uh, you have your own website, uh, hamletsarkisian.com, but also the book is also has a website of its own, uh, Lovers in the Fog. Um, let's start off uh, with the title. Uh, I think that uh, for those that are able to see, uh, there's a sort of a great image on the cover, which is this couple lying in a bed with the frame around them, of course, is one of those handheld uh, tape recorders. So that right, tells you sort of recording. this idea that, you know, uh, we're kind of always being watched or, you know, listened to by someone. Sometimes maybe it's the right. person you're in bed with or it's the government or drones flying around in this day and age. Uh, so talk about the, the title of the book and kind of tell us a little bit about the story. Right. The story is about American human rights lawyers who at uh, late 80s, Gorbachev era, late 80s. It's actually, I discovered after writing this book uh, that it's kind of almost, uh, you can say it's based on real events because, believe it or not, there were American lawyers who, um, late 80s, decided that we should go to uh, Russia and try to teach those dissidents and people. They saw that the country was collapsing. Right. And they said, we should go teach them law civil law, election law, or something, because they were kind of, uh, this is a generation who grew up with Cold War, and they were fed up with Cold War. And they wanted to get rid of the Cold War, and they thought the way to do it is to help that society to, to reform itself. Of course, they go to Russia, and they realize we cannot change nothing here, because uh, most of the population has been lobotomized and is very afraid. And those few people who can do it, they're mostly physicists, and, and, you know, they're scientists and artists. So they get very disillusioned. And they spend the rest of the decade of 90s trying to save, actually, those dissidents, bringing them to United States or France and stuff. It's, it's a true story. So um, this book touches that uh, true story. And um, ex except that I expose in it also my father's story. So there's a character in it called Vasya Verbitsky. I modeled it because I grew up in political prisoner's family. So I saw those meetings, and I heard them. And I saw the absolute devotion and, and purity and, and fantastic human beings who were fighting truly for liberty. I saw them as freedom fighters. And, and my father, when I was a teenager, told me a story that in the 70s they met an, an, an American attorney who came to... Soviet Union, and he went to Baltic Republics, then came Georgia and Armenia, and he wanted to get lists of, he was fascinated by uh, political dissent. And then when they met him, in the beginning, he said that they were very suspicious, who is this guy? This guy like CIA, KGB, so somebody's trying to kind of infiltrate us, or uh, who is this guy? But then when they met him, they were amazed because they found out that he's, he's a real guy. It's just an American guy who came here, and he wants to find out information about the ideology of this country and stuff. And he said to me, as long as there are people like this in the world, we have hope. 
So that's why I wanted to make a book about good people. Really, that's what this book is about. And uh, your your main character, who basically tells the story, Luke Forsyth, he right. is basically he's sort of model on this idea. I don't right. Think so that's model not model that on idea. a specific person, but just the idea. Of Absolutely. And uh, so, talk a little bit about. Uh, so yeah, so I know that in the book he actually goes to Russia to do this, but uh, talk about sort of this. I know that in the book he, I guess, he goes to uh, he goes to meet with. Uh, someone, a mystery woman who went missing a decade before, and uh, the the starting point where I want to talk about that is the fact that he uh, basically he doesn't drive across the country, but he drives up the entire eastern seaboard. Uh, and so, in reading about that, I was wondering, have you driven through much of the country, like in because you've been here for more than thirty years, now. right? So, have you experienced sort of like the, the very different, very unique parts? Yes, of this I did, country? and it's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's. I, I kind of in the beginning, I was very much surprised when I found out that only seven percent of Americans actually own a passport. Right. You know, so it's a, that statistics that blew my mind away. It means ninety three percent really don't travel outside of the country. Yeah. And it, it yeah, just to interject, I was I was friends with a with a girl from Japan, and she didn't believe she couldn't believe that I didn't leave the house with my passport. I'm like, what? I don't need it. Yeah. I have it. It's in a drawer. Maybe I'll see it like once every five years, you know. But it's like, yeah, we we I guess just the thinking is, there's so much traveling to do within the United States. Exactly, yeah. because it's like fifty states. It's, it's like fifty countries. Yeah, and and there's very distinct cultural differences between people who live in North Dakota. Or they live in Southern California. Right. You know, so yeah, it fascinates me. And I find uh, it's one of the most interesting countries and and people's mentality and people's approach to way of life. It really is different from everywhere else. So our hero drives up from uh, uh, Key West to Montauk in New York and to meet a, um, a woman that he had an affair many, many years ago who wants to see him now. And during that journey, he remembers the love story between him and her, which was also um, accompanied by his mission to go to Russia. Okay, so... So it's kind of having two mutually exclusive things, themes going on, which is one is love, and love is uh, or devotion and sacrifice and truth and honesty, and then there is politics, which is opposite of that. And it's him trying to maintain his uh, focus and morality and humanity in life, reliving those experiences and coming. There's a surprise in the book, which I don't want to give away. Oh, yeah, please don't. <laughs> yeah, there's a very big surprise uh, three-quarter into the book. But uh, I wanted this juxtaposition of those two themes because I saw that theme also. My father was always torn apart between love of this family and what he had to do because you have to kind of jeopardize your safety to get anywhere. Even now, in America, you can see many people. Look, you can disagree with Donald Trump as much as you want, but you cannot um, kind of weaponize an entire network. You see, CNN, for example, right. belongs to all of us. We need to get from CNN the news. Right. We need to know what's happening in the world. But CNN, for the last two years, 24-7, is bashing Donald Trump. You see, that, that, that I find that dishonest. I find that uh, they, they have no right to do that because we as American citizens, we need to be informed what's going on in the world. Right, and I think even people who are not a fan of his and, you know, that reaches all sorts of levels. Yes, that's what I mean. About it. But 
they don't need to go to a channel where everything has that slant. I mean, people are very critical of Fox News during the Obama years in particular, you know, like just little things like they would use his middle name, Obama Hussein Obama, because of what the connotation was. And uh, I, I guess that's just the way that we consume media because I think in both cases... I think both of those are just a terrible approach, and you would hope that there were people who wanted what you're talking about, where you get somehow get the actual news. Absolutely. But, we need to talk about this. Right. We need to change it. We cannot allow Fox News to stay on this side and CNN, MSNBC on this side, and they completely fight all the time, and that will, they will destroy the country. Because we need everybody to calm down a little bit, to refocus themselves what's the most important. They have a role. And they're, because they're using public airwaves. Their role is to inform us, to inform us about not only what Donald Trump tweeted that day. Yeah. I want to know, you know, there's there's people dying in Mediterranean, trying to cross Mediterranean because they cannot live in sub-Saharan Africa anymore. Well, even if you bring it closer to home, the story about what's going on at our border, it doesn't focus on why are these people leaving not just Mexico, absolutely. but further, you know, Guatemala, all these further southern countries. Oh, that's southern such an South important American subject countries. matter. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. With this immigration issue, I'm kind of an immigrant myself. I am, a, I am that political refugee. It, this conversation needs to be openly discussed. Who's coming here? Why are they coming here? What's the way we have to deal with it? It's so important to know who are migrants, who are people who are coming here for ideological reasons. You yeah. Know? yeah. None of it is talked about. It's none of it. It's just a, it's too much politicized, the news. That's what I'm saying. Well, it's politicized, but there's also the sort of celebrity factor of it, which is... Can you believe what Donald Trump said about Meghan Markle when he went to the United States? So you have sort of us covering it there, and then, you know, I'll get some news from some British websites. So, of course, that's right at the top. And then, you know, actual policies get so lost in the conversation. No, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in 30,000 families who are living in Detroit in motels. Yeah. That's what I'm interested about, to know. Okay, so we as a country, what are we going to do about it? And you talk about Detroit. I mean, the people in Flint, Michigan still can't drink their water. You know? I mean, imagine it, that. It, I mean, and you would you would think that that's something that would happen in the the Soviet Union or the Third World, or but no, it's it's here, and the solution is we'll drop off a case of bottled water every once in a while, yeah. and they'll figure it out. That's why I think it's very important for artists, well-known people, also in the country, to come on board and say this temperature is going way too high. Yeah, it's way too toxic, and any time that happened before, those countries end up losing very important things. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, people are... Well, people kind of look for the echo chamber. They want to hear people who believe what they believe, and that's why I think it's very smart that, you know, obviously we have, I believe, 24 people running for the Democratic nomination next year, but you have... uh, A few of them have done these one-on-one town halls, and they've done them for the Fox News channel. And it's like, well, yeah, because that's not the people that are going to automatically vote for whoever has a D next to them. Yeah. You should be trying to talk more. And people, I think, in, on the one hand, people are just exhausted. They don't, even if they hate Trump, no. they don't want to talk about him anymore. Right. They don't want to hear about it. I think that, you know, and that might even be by design by someone, is that just you exhaust everybody and then they don't pay attention to the important things. Yeah, it's possible. You know? It really is possible. Um, but I do, I do want to go back to talk about the book. Uh, obviously, we could talk about uh, all of these 
uh, all of these things. Uh, what are some of the other uh, locations? Yeah, so obviously there's the sort of the, the drive up the eastern seaboard, but where are some other places that the book takes place? And are there the places book takes place when he goes to Russia, he ends up in Leningrad. Right. And that's where he meets all these dissidents. You yeah. see, it's kind of a, the lead, uh, the hero of this book is kind of, I would say kind of a old Hollywood, Robert Meacham type hero. Do you see what I mean? This is like a, mm-hmm. it's definitely not a after Me Too movement type hero, if I can put it this way. No, absolutely. There's yeah. no political correctness in this book. Right. It, this, um, the character, the hero of the book is has a lot of self-destructive things going on in his life. He drinks, he fantasizes, he, he, but then when it comes to moral value system, he fights for it. And that's why I like this character so much, and I was fascinated by him for so many years. So that's why when he goes to uh, Russia and he meets these dissidents, and now me being uh, living in uh, both countries, even though I left Soviet Union when I was very, very young, but I still remember it very well, it's... They're so contrary to each other, and it's so fascinating. That's why he gets fascinated by these people. He understands that, man, they're, they're literally, literally jeopardizing their lives for truth. I mean, I was just thinking that they, whom do I know in the United States who's jeopardizing their life for truth? You see, that's a question needs to be asked everybody who's bashing the country. You see, it, it, people take risks for their career. Yeah. But those dissidents... On, in Eastern countries, in Eastern European countries, they were literally jeopardizing their lives. So they, they had to think about that. That's that's the power for me of the meeting of Luke Forsyth, is Russian distant, is that, that they know, even socializing with him, doing things for him, most likely is going to lead to their death. But they want to do it so they can their kids can be free. Um, sort of to uh, personalize it, you, know, you mentioned uh, kids. Uh, how different would you say the uh, day-to-day upbringing is for your kids here in Los Angeles versus how you grew up in the Soviet Union? Oh, it says no comparison. <laughs> That's kind of what I figured. Yeah, yeah, zero comparison. Even though, let's say, I grew up in an Armenian family. In Armenia, it's like Southern Republic. It's people are happier mm-hmm. over there because it's more sunny, and the culture is very family culture. And they're all good people. But uh, the Soviet system the, in, under which we were functioning is a very militaristic system. It's very eugenistic. I don't know if you know about uh, eugenism. It's, it's kind of um, very Darwinian. Social Darwinism. Right, I mean there. that's uh, eugenics is uh, something that you often hear, you know, in the context of the Nazis, you know, sort of the master race. Okay, that's that uh, some, I'm glad you said that. For uh, there's no difference between Nazis right. and communism. So, so Nazis were called. Uh, don't forget that the name of their party was National Socialistic Socialist. Workers Party of right. Germany. Yes, Workers <laughs> Party. There's a great movie that I want everybody to see to who is following this podcast. It's called The Soviet Story. Okay. It's a documentary done by a Latvian uh, filmmaker maybe 10 years ago that does comparative analysis of socialism and communism. And you'll be amazed because he found facts. He found amazing facts over there. How Goebbels and Goering, how much they were admiring Lenin how much they were quoting Lenin, how close those two people were before the war, World War II started. They right. were in total admiration of each other. They both hated private property. 
They both admired slave labor, which is what they did to their populations, except this one was advocating socialism based on uh, class warfare, and the other ones based on race. Right. That was the only thing they were disagreeing. Actually, when you say that, I want to read, can I read one? Please, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Christian, read, uh, this is something that, uh, from the book. Yeah, from Lovers in the Fog uh, by Hamlet Sarkissian, who's uh, joining us here. This is one of the Russian dissidents who's talking to uh, Luke Forsyth. He says, my friends, you must know this. Karl Marx hated everybody and everything. Vasya and I studied all his published articles. Have you ever read any of them? Marx and Friedrich Engels published their own magazine called Reichnitze Zeitung, in German, sure. as early as 1849. Marx wrote that when the class war happens, there will be primitive societies that are not capitalist yet, like Basques, Serbs, Scottish Highlanders, and Slavic people. He called them racial trash. He co Marx calls all these people racial trash in his magazine. He said, there are two, they are two stages behind in the historical struggle, so they must perish in the coming revolutionary holocaust. Marx and Engels were the first people to advocate racial extermination. Marx is the forefather of modern political genocide, and still the so-called intellectuals around the world worship him and long for a society based on his ideals. You see, these are facts that people don't know how much these people hated other people. Yeah, and when you're talking about sort of this, not even borderline, this actual like admiration between the Nazis and Stalin, it's almost like the reason why they ended up on opposite sides in the war is because they both were like, well, no, we're, we're the best. And the Nazis were like, well, no, we can't work with somebody who also wants to you know, right. rule the world, for lack of a it's better It's a big taboo it. in Russia, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact that they signed in 1939, to divide Poland. Right. And now, after Iron Curtain fell, some of these very brave uh, historians in Russia went to archives, and they found actually copies of this pact in German archives. Oh, wow. And they brought it and showed it because people did not want to believe. Because, you know, in Russia, this war is called Great Patriotic War. My great-uncle walked from Stalingrad to Reichstag three years. I don't know, he had 40 or more uh, wounds. Wow. These people were dedicated. He was not allowing us to hold a pen that said made in Germany. <laughs> wow. Because yeah. uh, they saw what Nazis did in Belarusian villages, where they burned entire villages alive, everybody. They were very brutal and cruel, those Nazis. Okay? So for uh, people in Soviet Union to think that their government which is under Stalin, cut a deal with Hitler to divide Poland was unthinkable. But that's exactly what they did. So when 1939 Hitler invaded Poland from west, Stalin and the Red Army invaded from the east. They divided Poland. Yeah. I mean, that was crazy. And then, of course, that's why Stalin was very much in shock when Hitler attacked USSR. Right. He couldn't believe it. And that's why were all those losses, I mean, it's a Right now, there are many great studies that are people. Want, people are just now imagine. This is what, like, seventy years later after the war, eighty years later, yeah. people are wondering how come we had so many losses. How come this German army was advancing so fast, taking one point five million soldiers were taken as POWs in the first two months. In the first two in months. The first two months. <laughs> imagine that. 
and most of them died yeah later on from dysenteria and stuff and, and Germans treated them very badly well when and when you put it in that context you know it's uh one of the the questions that I, I think a lot of people look at historically is uh, Harry Truman's decision to uh, bomb the Japanese because it just came to his attention like here's the numbers here's how many people are going to die yes here's what's going to happen yeah. when you drop this bomb but here's what's going to here's what it's going to mean to us if this war continues this long and the Japanese in that time being as tough as they were you had to drop a second bomb because they didn't get it the first time and uh, you know, I mean, you can you can argue that decision all you want, but you can understand how tough it must have been. Yeah. And when you just see a number, whatever that number must have been, for Truman to be like, well, this is the only thing that uh, we can possibly do. Um, uh, so what I think about the book, obviously we're talking about such really uh, heady topics that the book is able to kind of frame this conversation in a way that's very entertaining. The idea and, is to provoke yeah. those uh, thoughts. And that's sort of what we were talking about before, about the news, and people aren't necessarily getting the information they need. And maybe this is the way to do it, is to have stories that are actually able to at least have them think more. You know, uh, here at AfterBuzz TV, I did a show about the Chernobyl TV show, and every yeah. episode we would talk about it afterwards. And uh, one there, there was a young woman on the panel. She was in her, I think, late twenties, early thirties. She didn't know anything other than the word Chernobyl and that you know that there was a nuclear oh, accident. So it was great though because she wanted to know so much. Yeah. And you know there was a there was a documentary that all of us watched that uh, I, I forget what country it was from, but yeah. it was about the 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 men who cleaned up the roof of the right. reactor. And yeah. you know it, it was. Uh, fairly poorly translated with the, uh, yeah. the you know so th that's you know a, a fact based it's not a fully factual story but it showed to me like yeah people can really be interested in these bigger conversations and understanding you know what life was like in the Soviet Union and Very important. what it means when these things happen uh, one other thing in addition to just buying the book, uh, Lovers in the Fog, and being able to read it, there's also an audio version. Now, uh, right. talk uh, for a moment about that and where people can find out more. Yes, audiobook also. We tried to do it differently. So, audiobooks, I'm, I'm a filmmaker, yeah. and I just couldn't bear to listen uh, just one voice for six hours uh, reading a book. It just bores me to death. I cannot get through it. So I wanted to figure out differently. So what we did here is we cut sound effects and the sound design, and we... Uh, a very good friend of mine, his name is Steve Hunter, he's one of uh, the most iconic, uh, legendary guitar players in this country. He was the frontman on Lou Reed and Peter Gabriel, and you just name it. And he wrote an original score to it, so oh, it's right. like you're hearing uh, a movie. Right, it's it's sort of like you know there were before there was even television there were the old radio plays with exactly. the sound effects and the, the actors all acting it out. Yeah. And really, I think that's kind of one great way in which podcasts are being utilized. You can get long form yeah. conversations like the one we're having, but then you also get the ones that are very produced. And it's it's funny that that entertainment can be so circular like that, that we're basically people now have this high-tech, you know, iPhone in their pocket, yeah. but they're listening to the equivalent of old radio dramas. Right. And so if people go to loversinthefog.com, they can find out more they about it. They can find it. It's on Audible. It's on iTunes. It's on every platform. It's right. on Amazon. I'm very proud of the audiobook, and I, he and I hear some spectacular feedback on it So because music is great, and David Cooley, who reads it, he reads great. 
and the guys who, who uh, Christopher Harvant and Charles Mains who uh, sound designed and mixed it, it's uh, the highest quality you can imagine. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have trouble finding time to read these days, so maybe that's a more appealing way to check out the book, but even if you do read the book, why don't you experience it in a, in a different way? And whichever version you're interested in, you can find out more at loversinthefog.com. Thanks so much to Hamlet Sarkissian. You were so generous with your time. Uh, I easily could have done this for another hour or two, but uh, that's all the time we have. Now, on our next episode, I'm going to feature the audio from an interview that I was part of on Marvel Movie News, which is one of the shows that I do for the Popcorn Talk Network. It is my fourth interview with X-Men writer, the great Chris Claremont. So you can look for that next time on The Blatcast. Stop me, yeah.